There's an old saying that you are probably familiar with. You can't judge a book by its cover. It means that the outward appearance of something or someone is not a reliable indication of their true character. I have a couple of tomato plants in my garden right now. One of them is huge. It's over six feet tall, and it's as wide as it is tall. It, it looks like something from the prehistoric era. It has these big, beautiful green leaves, and it fills the air with that distinct tomato plant smell when you brush up against it. By outward appearances, it is the picture of health and vitality. But on closer inspection, there's a problem with this gigantic tomato plant. It isn't producing much fruit. There are only a couple of little tomatoes on that big plant. Now, my other tomato plant, which is right next to this other one, it's a third its size and width. In comparison to the first plant, this plant is not much to look at at all. But this second plant, it has tomatoes popping out all over it. One plant is all show and no go. The other one is fulfilling its intended purpose in a beautiful way. The same can be said about people and churches. Some are all show and no go, while others are fulfilling their intended purpose, producing beautiful fruit in their lives. Last time in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we noted that Jesus was on his final journey toward Jerusalem. The people following along were both nervous and excited. People were nervous because Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, the seat of power in Israel, both politically and spiritually. It was no secret, though, that the religious leaders and the power brokers, they wanted to put an end to this troublemaker. People were also excited, though, about Jesus coming to Jerusalem. They had been expecting a Messiah who would be a great king like David, leading them to victory over their enemies, which at that time was the Romans, and establish Israel as an indisputable power. These people, they're hoping that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, and it means that he's getting ready to make his move to assume power as that Messiah. People, though, in large part, don't understand the mission of Jesus he was indeed heading to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission, but it was not to lead the people in a campaign to overthrow the Romans. Instead, he is going to Jerusalem to be rejected, humiliated, tortured, and killed in the most brutal way of the day. By going through all of that, though, Jesus would be fulfilling the purpose of God for him dying as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity and then coming back to life on the third day to give eternal life to all who would believe and put their trust in him as their Savior. We looked at the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 21 a few weeks ago on Palm Sunday. 
We don't want to redo that whole study again today, but we do want to summarize some of the main points to establish the context for our study today. Chapter 21 begins a new major section of Jesus' life story as told by Matthew. Everything from here on takes place in and around the city of Jerusalem during the final week of Jesus' life, which is what has come to be referred to as the Passion Week. So chapter 21 really begins the Passion Week for Jesus. It begins with Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem on what has come to be known as Palm Sunday. Jesus normally walked everywhere. But on this occasion, he came riding into the city on the back of a donkey colt. Crowds of people lined both sides of the road. They took their garments and cut green branches from trees, and they spread them out on the road in front of Jesus, creating a path of honor for him to travel on. And it says they were rolling out the red carpet, in a sense, for Jesus, treating him as the king entering the capital city. And as Jesus was riding along, the the crowds were shouting praises and proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah. They were chanting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna means save us. They were proclaiming Jesus as the coming King Messiah. Jesus is indeed the King. But he's unlike any king we have ever encountered before. The donkey colt that he is riding in on is a symbol of peace and humility. It was the animal of the common people. The horse, on the other hand, was the animal of kings, a symbol of honor and power and war. And what a radical contrast between the king that God sent us and the king that we choose for ourselves. The king God sent to us is a king of peace and reconciliation and rescue. God didn't send his son Jesus Christ into our world to make war. He sent his son into our world to save us and to bring reconciliation between us and himself. There's that familiar passage in John 3. Verses 16 and 17, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. After that grand parade, Jesus then went to the temple, and he wasn't pleased with what he found there. The religious leadership had allowed the outer court of the temple to become a noisy, smelly marketplace where sacrificial animals were being sold, where money was being converted from one currency to another, and people were allowed to just use this area as a shortcut on their way to wherever else they were headed in the city. The atmosphere of the temple, rather than it being a place of sanctuary, for people away from the noise and the commerce of their everyday lives, a place where they could seek the Lord, pour out their hearts to Him in prayer, meditate upon His Word, be still before Him and listen for His voice. It was instead filled with the sounds and the smells of animals, merchants bartering with people, the clanging of carts being pulled and pushed from one end to the other, people chatting with each other. And so on. There was nothing sacred or reverent about it. 
When Jesus saw all of this going on, it says he started cleaning house, literally. He drove out the merchants and their animals. He tipped over the tables of the money changers, scattering their stuff. He stopped people from using the temple court as a shortcut. Jesus said to them, quoting from the prophet, Isaiah, or prophet Jeremiah, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He made a lot of people very mad that day. Jesus then left and spent the night in the town of Bethany, which is a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. You might remember that Bethany is where Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary, lived. We now pick up the story the next morning. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 18. It says, Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. This is an odd story. On the surface, it might appear to be the senseless outburst of anger by Jesus, but that's not what's going on here. Jesus is not throwing a temper tantrum because he can't have figs for breakfast. That would be entirely out of character for him. So what's going on here? Well, to help us get at the meaning of this story and what it's teaching us, we need to pay attention to the context of what has been happening in this larger story. See, this is an acted-out parable for us. It means something beyond just the story on the surface. It's about the people who were making a show of their religious devotion but didn't really have any fruit in their lives. What Jesus found going on at the temple the day before is exactly what we're talking about here. Rather than the temple being a house of prayer, they had allowed it to become a den of robbers, he said. The sacred has become a place of the secular and the profane. There's a parable in Luke's Gospel in chapter 13 which teaches the same essential truth. The, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel, in this case, and also of the people who were professing to be devoted to God. They have all of the pageantry, the ceremony, the tradition of devotion to God, but there is no real fruit present. They have beautiful green leaves. But when you look for fruit, there isn't any. It's Religion without life-affecting change. It's hypocrisy. And this can be true not only for a religious system, but also for individual people. Now, I want to make sure we understand what is meant by fruit here. Fruit is not accomplishments. Fruit is not accomplishments. Fruit is godly character. Christ's likeness, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which includes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Fruit has to do with the kind of people we are, our character and our moral purity. That's fruit that's being talked about here. The fate of this fig tree in the story reminds us of what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 12, when he said, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. 
Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. The ultimate consequence of continued fruitless hypocrisy will be a fate of fruitlessness. Lord, we want fruitful lives. We want a fruitful church. We want to be fulfilling the intended purpose that you have for us. Amen? Verse 20, it says, When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. What is said here requires some explanation. The point of what Jesus says in these verses is not that if we have enough confidence, we can unleash the hidden, untapped potential inside of us and cause a mountain to be hurled into the sea. Now that's the idea at the root of some very popular teachings about faith in our culture and about human potential. And that sells a lot of books and it draws large crowds, but it's not what Jesus taught about faith and prayer. See, there, there's no secret power inside of us that we can unleash to accomplish amazing feats, including the rearranging of literal mountains like they are little more than furniture in our living room. Jesus teaches that the object of our faith needs to be God. He is the one who possesses mountain-moving power. Now that may seem obvious on the surface to say, but our focus is often drawn elsewhere. When the disciples see the withered fig tree, they're impressed with the effect of the words Jesus had spoken. But Jesus tells them and us that our focus should not be on the effect, but on the source of power that produces the effect. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, Hey guys, the source of the power that produced this withered fig tree, which you are so impressed with, can also take this very mountain that we are standing on and throw it into the sea. Don't be impressed with the withered fig tree. Be impressed with God. Jesus is telling them they have their eyes in the wrong place. It's like the disciples are watching a very skilled musician play a guitar, making beautiful music. And rather than being amazed at the skill of the musician, the disciples are amazed at the guitar. Look at that amazing guitar. And Jesus wants them to be amazed by the musician, not the instrument. Faith, faith, is often portrayed in popular culture as if it's a kind of power. Faith is not a power. Faith is trust in and reliance on God who has the power to accomplish great things. Now, I purposely did not say that faith is trust in the power of God. I said faith is trust in God. Our trust is in Him, who He is, His love for us, His promises made to us, His character. 
A little kid who is going to jump from the top bunk bed into his father's waiting arms is not trusting in his father's physical strength. He's trusting in his father. His father's physical strength is taken for granted. He trusts in his father that he will use his physical strength and whatever else to keep him safe. God uses his power, but it is his love for us that causes him to act. Withered fig trees and mountains rolled into seas are both just effects rather than the who that's acted. When we think, God didn't answer my prayer because I didn't have enough faith, we've moved our focus off of God and onto ourselves. When we have faith in God, our focus is not on our faith, it is on God. Having faith in God means we are trusting Him with the outcome, with the effect, with whatever happens. We're trusting that He will do what is best, whether it's what we think should be done or not. We're trusting Him with the yeses and the noes. Max Lucado wrote, Faith is not the belief that God will do what we want. It's the belief that God will do what is right. Jesus says here, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. A misunderstanding that someone can have is to think that whatever you ask for, if you believe hard enough for it, you will get it. That's not the whole picture here. That would require us to ignore everything else taught in the Bible about faith and prayer and God. We can't read this one sentence in isolation of everything else taught by Jesus and others and form a doctrine from it. Can you imagine the nightmare that this world would be if it were true that whatever you ask for, you will get it if you believe hard enough for it? Think about it. Billions of human beings all getting exactly what they wish for all of the time. That would be terrifying. Most of those wishes would be incompatible with one another, so the chaos that would ensue is incomprehensible. Obviously, Jesus did not mean that whatever we ask for, if we believe hard enough, we will get it. That's not what he meant. I don't think any one of us would really want God to answer our prayers exactly the way we think we want them answered in the moment anyway, would we? I mean, I know that in the moment when I am praying, I think, I think I know how I want God to answer my prayer. In reality, though, I don't know enough about all of the interconnections and the dependencies between events and people to know the best solution in every situation. I can't see the future and how things are going to work out. I can't see the ripple effects that my actions are going to have on other people. It's all too complicated for me to truly know the best thing to do or to happen. William Culberson said, keep praying, but be thankful that God's answers are wiser than your prayers. It's been said that we don't pray to change God, but to change us. Through prayer, we learn to trust and to submit our will to our Heavenly Father. 
And Jesus, he is the most dramatic example of someone doing that. When he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before he was going to be crucified, he prayed and he asked God, remember, he asked the Father to change things so that he would not have to go through the terrible suffering of the crucifixion. But he then took this place of profound submission and he prayed, not my will, but yours be done, Father. C.S. Lewis wisely observed, for most of us, the prayer in Gethsemane is the only model for us. Not my will, but yours be done. Removing mountains can wait. Clarence Bauman said, the purpose of prayer is not to inform God of our needs, but to invite him to rule our lives. Tony Evans said it this way, we need to remember that we're talking to the king, not Santa Claus. And what a wonderfully generous and wise king he is. Amen. Verse 23, Jesus entered the temple court, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem riding on the donkey colt on Sunday. Jesus cleaned house at the temple, driving out the merchants and their animals and the rest of it on Monday. It's believed that it is now Tuesday. Jesus is in the temple court area teaching. This is the same area that he had caused such a commotion the day before when he drove out the merchants and the animals and such. And now the, the Jewish religious leaders and power brokers of Jerusalem come to question Jesus about what he has been doing. These are the heavyweights, the big kahunas, the top brass, the most powerful and influential people in Israel. They're thinking, who does this guy think he is? Coming into our domain and throwing everything into turmoil. Who put him in charge? Who appointed him chief? Who gave him the right to do these things? Jesus has no title of authority. He's not a priest. He's not a scribe. He's not an elder. He doesn't occupy a seat on the Jewish court. He has no important relatives. He has no money. He owns nothing of significance. He comes from a podunk town up north. He's a nobody. It may not be immediately apparent, but their questions are a trap. If Jesus bluntly says that he is acting on the authority of God, it will give them opportunity then to accuse him of blasphemy, which was a very serious charge. If convicted, the punishment was death. But Jesus, he's much too clever for that. Verse 24, Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? 
So rather than directly answering their question, Jesus asks them this question. He tells them that if they will answer his question, then he will answer their question. This asking of counter-questions was a form of debate used in those days. And Jesus, he's very wise in the way that he handles these guys. He's forcing them to show their hand rather than tip his own and give them the advantage. Jesus, he already knows what their position on John the Baptist is. He knows they don't acknowledge John the Baptist as a true prophet from God. He also knows that they fear the people too much to come right out and say what they really think about him. So he's forcing them into a corner. Jesus is the wisest and the most courageous person who ever lived, which also makes him the most dangerous person who ever lived. He's the wrong person to mess with in a battle of the wits. They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. See, they realize too late that Jesus has them cornered. No matter how they answer his question, they are in trouble. So they decide to punt. They say, I don't know. We, we, we don't know. And Jesus, not willing to give them any satisfaction, he tells them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Game, set, match. Jesus has taken these Jewish big shots apart with a single question. They raised the question about the authority of Jesus to do the things that he's doing. He raises the question about their competency to even judge such things. Ouch. Authority and power are not always about pushing people around and demanding explanations from them. That's how these guys have used their authority and power here. But Jesus, he's different. He is using his authority and power to rescue us. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In John 10, 18, Jesus said he has authority to lay down his life, and he has authority to take it up again. All this he did for us. In closing, I just want to bring us back to that idea that we see illustrated in this fig tree with all of the leaves but no fruit. Lord, may your good fruit be produced in our lives in abundance. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good word today spoken to us. And Lord, we, we pray for ourselves as individuals and as and for our church, and that, 
fruit would be produced in our life in abundance, Lord. That the character of Jesus would continue to grow in us and increase and in our church as well. Or we, we pray that when people see us, they see Jesus. We're not perfect representations of him, but, oh, Lord, make us more and more like him every day. Holy Spirit, continue to do your beautiful work in us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.